Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the, what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, Radio Free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to time. In spite of Montoni, cried Emily eagerly. What is it I hear? You hear that Montoni is a villain, exclaimed Morano with vehemence. A villain who would have sold you to my love, who... And is he less who would have bought me, said Emily, fixing on the Count an eye of calm contempt. Leave the room, sir, instantly, she continued her voice, trembling between joy and fear or I will alarm the family, and you may receive that from Signor Montoni's vengeance, which I would have vainly supplicated from his pity. But Emily knew that she was beyond the hearing of those who might protect her. You can never hope anything from his pity, said Morano. He has used me infamously, and my vengeance shall pursue him. And for you, Emily, for you, he has new plans more profitable than the last, no doubt. The gleam of hope, which the Count's former speech had revived, was now nearly extinguished by the latter, and while Emily's countenance betrayed the emotions of her mind, he endeavored to take advantage of the discovery. I lose time, said he. I came not to exclaim against Montoni. I came to solicit, to plead, to Emily, to tell her all I suffer, to entreat her to save me from despair and herself from destruction. Emily, the schemes of Montoni are insearchable, but I warn you, they are terrible. He has no principle when interest or ambition leads. Can I love you and abandon you to his power? Fly then, fly from this gloomy prison with a lover who adores you. I have bribed a servant of the castle to open the gates, and before tomorrow's dawn, you shall be far on the way to Venice. Emily, overcome by the sudden shock she had received at the moment, too, when she had begun to hope for better days, now thought she saw destruction surround her on every side. Unable to reply and almost to think, she threw herself into a chair, pale and breathless. That Montoni had formerly sold her to Murano was very probable. That he had now withdrawn his consent to the marriage was evident from the Count's present conduct and it was nearly certain that a scheme of stronger interest only could have induced the selfish Montoni to forgo a plan which he had hitherto so strenuously pursued. These reflections made her tremble at the hints which Murano had just given, which she no longer hesitated to believe. And while she shrunk from the new scenes of misery and oppression that might await her in the castle of Udolfo, she was compelled to observe that almost her only means of escaping them was by submitting herself to the protection of this man, with whom evils more certain and not less terrible appeared, evils upon which she could not endure to pause for an instant. Her silence, though it was of agony, encouraged the hopes of Marano, who watched her countenance with impatience, took again the resisting hand she had withdrawn, and as he pressed it to his heart, again conjured her to determine immediately Every moment we lose will make our departure more dangerous, said he. These few moments lost may enable Montoni to overtake us. 
I beseech you, sir, be silent, said Emily faintly. I am indeed very wretched, and wretched I must remain. Leave me, I command you. Lead me to my fate. Never, cried the Count vehemently. Let me perish first. But forgive my violence. The thought of losing you is madness. You cannot be ignorant of Montoni's character. You may be ignorant of his schemes. Nay, you must be so. Or you would not hesitate between my love and his power. Nor do I hesitate, said Emily. Let us go then, said Morano, eagerly kissing her hand and rising. My carriage waits below the castle walls. You mistake me, sir, said Emily. Allow me to thank you for the interest you express in my welfare, and to decide by my own choice. I shall remain under the protection of Signor Montoni. Under his protection? exclaimed Morano proudly. His protection? Emily, why will you suffer yourself to be thus deluded? I have already told you what you have to expect from his protection. And pardon me, sir, if in this instance I doubt mere assertion, and to be convinced requires something approaching to proof. I have now neither the time or the means of adducing proof, replied the Count. Nor have I, sir, the inclination to listen to it if you had. But you trifle with my patience and my distress, continued Morano. Is a marriage with a man who adores you so very terrible in your eyes that you would prefer to it all the misery to which Montoni may condemn you in this remote prison? Some wretch must have stolen those affections which ought to be mine, or you would not thus obstinately persist in refusing an offer that would place you beyond the reach of oppression. Morana walked about the room with quick steps and a disturbed air. This discourse, Count Morano, sufficiently proves that my affections ought not to be yours, said Emily mildly, and this conduct, that I should not be placed beyond the reach of oppression, so long as I remained in your power. If you wish me to believe otherwise, cease to oppress me any longer by your presence. If you refuse this, you will compel me to expose you to the resentment of Signor Montoni. Yes, let him come! cried Morano furiously, and brave my resentment. Let him dare to face once more the man he has so courageously injured. Danger shall teach him morality and vengeance justice. Let him come and receive my sword in his heart. The vehemence with which this was uttered gave Emily new cause of alarm, who rose from her chair, but her trembling frame refused to support her, and she resumed her seat. The words died on her lips, and when she looked wistfully toward the door of the corridor, which was locked, she considered it was impossible for her to leave the apartment before Morano would be apprised of and able to counteract her intention. Without observing her agitation, he continued to pace the room in utmost perturbation of spirits. His darkened countenance expressed all the rage of jealousy and revenge, and a person who has seen his features up under the smile of ineffable tenderness which he so lately assumed, would now scarcely have believed them to be the same. Count Morano, said Emily, at length recovering her voice, calm, I entreat you, these transports, and listen to reason, if you will not to pity. You have equally misplaced your love and your hatred. I never could have returned the affection with which you honor me, and certainly have never encouraged it. Neither has Signor Montoni injured you, for you must have known that he had no right to dispose of my hand, had he even possessed the power to do so. 
Leave them. Leave the castle while you may with safety. Spare yourself the dreadful consequences of an unjust revenge and the remorse of having prolonged to me these moments of suffering. Is it for mine or for Montoni's safety that you are thus alarmed, said Morano coldly and turning towards her with a look of acrimony. For both, said Emily in a trembling voice. Unjust revenge, cried the Count, resuming the abrupt tones of passion. Who that looks upon that face can imagine a punishment adequate to the injury he would have done me? Yes, I will leave the castle, but it shall not be alone. I have trifled too long. Since my prayers and my sufferings cannot prevail, force shall. I have people in waiting who shall convey you to my carriage. Your voice will bring no succour. It cannot be heard from this remote part of the castle. Submit, therefore, in silence to go with me. This was an unnecessary injunction at present, for Emily was too certain that her call would avail her nothing, and terror had so entirely disordered her thoughts that she knew not how to plead to Morano, but sat mute and trembling in her chair till he advanced to lift her from it. When she suddenly raised herself, and with a repulsive gesture and a countenance of forced serenity, said, Count Morano, I am now in your power, but you will observe that this is not the conduct which can win the esteem you appear so solicitous to obtain, and that you are preparing for yourself a load of remorse in the miseries of a friendless orphan, which can never leave you. Do you believe your heart to be indeed so hardened that you can look without emotion on the suffering to which you would condemn me? Emily was interrupted by the growling of the dog, who now came again from the bed, and Morano looked towards the door of the staircase, where no person appearing, he cried aloud, Cesario! Emily, said the Count, why will you reduce me to adopt this conduct? How much more willingly would I persuade than compel you to become my wife? But by heaven, I will not leave you to be sold by Montoni. Yet a thought glances across my mind that brings madness with it. I know not how to name it. It is preposterous. It cannot be, yet you tremble, you grow pale. It is, it is so. You, you love Montoni, cried Morano, grasping Emily's wrist and stamping his foot on the floor. An involuntary air of surprise appeared on her countenance. If you have indeed believed so, said she, believe so still. That look, those words confirm it, exclaimed Morano furiously. No, no, no. Montoni had a richer prize in view than gold, but he shall not live to triumph over me. This very instant, he was interrupted by the loud barking of the dog. Stay, Count Morano, said Emily, terrified by his words and by the fury expressed in his eyes. I will save you from this error. Of all men, Signor Montoni is not your rival. Though if I find all other means of saving myself vain, I will try whether my voice may not arouse his servants to my succour. Assertion, replied Morano, at such a moment, is not to be depended upon. How could I suffer myself to doubt, even for an instant, that he could see you and not love? But my first care shall be to convey you from the castle. Cesario! Ho! Cesario! A man now appeared at the door of the staircase, and other steps were heard ascending. Emily uttered a loud shriek as Morano hurried her across the chamber, and at the same moment she heard a noise at the door that opened upon the corridor. The Count paused an instant, as if his mind was suspended between love and the desire of vengeance. 
and in that instant the door gave way, and Montoni, followed by the old steward and several other persons, burst into the room. Draw! cried Montoni to the Count, who did not pause for a second bidding, but giving Emily into the hands of the people that appeared from the staircase, turned fiercely round. This in thine heart, felon, said he, as he made a thrust at Montoni with his sword, who parried the blow and aimed another, while some of the persons who had followed him into the room endeavored to part the combatants, while others rescued Emily from the hands of Morano's servants. Was it for this, Count Morano, said Montoni in a cool, sarcastic tone of voice, that I received you under my roof and permitted you, though my declared enemy, to remain under it for the night? Was it that you may repay my hospitality with the treachery of a fiend and rob me of my niece? Who talks of treachery, said Morano, in a tone of unrestrained vehemence. Let him that does show an unblushing face of innocence. Montoni, you are a villain. If there is treachery in this affair, look to yourself as the author of it. If, do I say, I, whom you have wronged with unexampled baseness, whom you have injured almost beyond redress, but why do I use words, come on, coward, and receive justice at my hands? Coward? cried Montoni, bursting from the people who held him, and rushing on the Count. When they both retreated into the corridor, where the fight continued so desperately that none of the spectators dared approach them, Montoni swearing that the first who interfered should fall by his sword. Jealousy and revenge lent all their fury to Morano, while the superior skill and the temperance of Montoni enabled him to wound his adversary, whom his servants now attempted to seize, but he would not be restrained, and regardless of his wound, continued to fight. He seemed to be both insensible both of pain and loss of blood, and alive only to the energy of his passions. Montoni, on the contrary, persevered in the combat with a fierce yet wary valor. He received the point of Murano's sword in his arm, but almost in the same instant severely wounded and disarmed him. The Count then fell back into the arms of his servant, while Montoni held his sword over him and bade him ask his life. Morano, sinking under the anguish of his wound, had scarcely replied by a gesture and by a few words, feebly articulated that he would not when he fainted. And Montoni was then going to have plunged the sword into his breast as he lay senseless, but his arm was arrested by Cavigny. To the interruption he yielded without much difficulty, but his complexion changed almost to blackness as he looked upon his fallen adversary and ordered that he should be carried instantly from the castle. In the meantime, Emily, who had been withheld from leaving the chamber during the affray, now came forward into the corridor and pleaded a cause of common humanity with the feelings of the warmest benevolence when she entreated Montoni to allow Murano the assistance in the castle which his situation required. But Montoni, who had seldom listened to pity, now seemed rapacious of vengeance, and with a monstrous cruelty again ordered his defeated enemy to be taken from the castle in his present state, though there were only the woods or a solitary neighboring cottage to shelter him from the night. The Count's servants having declared that they would not move him till he revived, Montoni stood inactive, Cavini remonstrating and Emily, superior to Montoni's menaces, giving water to Morano, and directing the attendants to bind up his wound. At length, 
Montoni had leisure to feel pain from his own hurt, and he withdrew to examine it. The Count, meanwhile, having slowly recovered, the first object he saw, on raising his eyes, was Emily, bending over him with a countenance strongly expressive of solicitude. He surveyed her with a look of anguish. "'I have deserved this,' said he, "'but not from Montoni. "'It is from you, Emily, that I have deserved punishment, "'yet I receive only pity.' He paused, for he had spoken with difficulty. After a moment he proceeded. I must resign you, but not to Montoni. Forgive me the sufferings I have already occasioned you. But for that villain, his infamy shall not go unpunished. Carry me from this place, said he to his servants. I am in no condition to travel. You must therefore take me to the nearest cottage, for I will not pass the night under his roof although I may expire on the way from it. Cesario proposed to go out and inquire for a cottage that might receive his master before he attempted to remove him, but Morano was impatient to be gone. The anguish of his mind seemed to be even greater than that of his wound, and he rejected with disdain the offer of Cavini to entreat Montoni that he might be suffered to pass the night in the castle. Cesario was now going to call up the carriage to the great gate, but the Count forbade him. I cannot bear the motion of the carriage, said he. Call some others of my people, that they may assist in bearing me in their arms. At length, however, Morano submitted to reason and consented that Cesario should first prepare some cottage to receive him. Emily, now that he had recovered his senses, was about to withdraw from the corridor when a message from Antoni commanded her to do so, and also that the Count, if he was not already gone, should quit the castle immediately. Indignation flashed from Morano's eyes and flushed his cheeks. Tell Montoni, said he, that I shall go when it suits my own convenience, that I quit the castle he dared to call his, as I would the nest of a serpent, and this is not the last he shall hear from me. Tell him, I will not leave another murder on his conscience, if I can help it. Count Morano, do you know what you say? said Cavini. Yes, signor, I know well what I say, and he will understand well what I mean. And his conscience will assist his understanding on this occasion. Count Morano, said Varese, who had hitherto silently observed him, dare again to insult my friend, and I will plunge this sword in your body. It would be an action worthy of the friend of a villain, said Morano, as the strong impulse of his indignation enabled him to raise himself from the arms of his servants. But the energy was momentary, and he sunk back, exhausted by the effort. Montoni's people, meanwhile, held Veresi, who seemed inclined, even in this instant, to execute his threat, and Cavini, who was not so depraved as to abet the cowardly malignity of Veresi, endeavored to withdraw him from the corridor and Emily, whom a compassionate interest had thus long detained, was now quitting it in new terror, when the supplicating voice of Morano arrested her, and by a feeble gesture he beckoned her to draw nearer. She advanced with timid steps, but the fainting languor of his countenance again awakened her pity and overcame her terror. "'I am going from hence forever,' said he. "'Perhaps I shall never see you again.' I would carry with me your forgiveness, Emily, nay, more, I would also carry your good wishes. 
"'You have my forgiveness, then,' said Emily, "'and my sincere wishes for your recovery.' "'And only for my recovery?' said Morano with a sigh. "'For your general welfare,' added Emily. "'Perhaps I ought to be contented with this,' he resumed. "'I certainly have not deserved more. "'But I would ask you, Emily, sometimes to think of me, "'and forgetting my offense, to remember only the passion which occasioned it. "'I would ask, alas, impossibilities. "'I would ask you to love me at this moment when I am about to part with you, "'and that perhaps forever I am scarcely myself. "'Emily, may you never know the torture of a passion like mine. "'What do I say, oh, that for me you might be sensible of such a passion?' Emily looked impatient to be gone. I entreat you, Count, to consult your own safety, said she, and linger here no longer. I tremble for the consequences of Signor Verezzi's passion and of Montoni's resentment, should he learn that you are still here. Morano's face was overspread with momentary crimson. His eyes sparkled, but he seemed endeavoring to conquer his emotion and replied in a calm voice. Since you are interested for my safety, I will regard it and be gone. But before I go, let me again hear you say that you wish me well, said he, fixing on her an earnest and mournful look. Emily repeated her assurances. He took her hand, which she scarcely attempted to withdraw, and put it to his lips. Farewell, Count Morano, said Emily, and she turned to go, when a second message arrived from Antoni, and she again conjured Morano, as he valued his life to quit the castle immediately. He regarded her in silence, with a look of fixed despair. But she had no time to enforce her compassionate entreaties, and, not daring to disobey the second command of Montoni, she left the corridor to attend him. He was in the cedar parlor that adjoined the great hall, laid upon a couch, and suffering a degree of anguish from his wound, which few persons could have disguised as he did. His countenance, which was stern but calm, expressed the dark passion of revenge, but no symptom of pain. Bodily pain, indeed, he had always despised, and had yielded only to the strong and terrible energies of the soul. He was attended by old Carlo, and by Signor Bertolini, but Madame Antoni was not with him. Emily trembled as she first approached and received his severe rebuke for not having obeyed his first summons, and perceived also that he attributed her stay in the corridor to a motive that had not even occurred to her artless mind. This is an instance of female caprice, said he, which I ought to have foreseen. Count Morano, whose suit you obstinately rejected, so long as it was countenanced by me, you favor, it seems, since you find I have dismissed him. Emily looked astonished. I do not comprehend you, sir, said she. You certainly do not mean to imply that the design of the Count to visit the double chamber was founded upon any approbation of mine. To that I reply nothing, said Montoni. But it must certainly be a more than common interest that made you plead so warmly in his cause, and that could detain you thus long in his presence, contrary to my express order. In the presence of a man whom you have hitherto, on all occasions, most scrupulously shunned. I fear, sir, it was a more than common interest that detained me, said Emily commonly. 
For of late, I have been inclined to think that of compassion is an uncommon one. But how could I, could you, sir, witness Count Morano's deplorable condition and not wish to relieve it? You add hypocrisy to caprice, said Montoni, frowning, and an attempt at satire to both. But before you undertake to regulate the morals of other persons, you should learn and practice the virtues which are indispensable to a woman, sincerity, uniformity of conduct, and obedience. Emily, who had always endeavored to regulate her conduct by the nicest laws, and whose mind was finally sensible, not only of what is just in morals, but of whatever is beautiful in the female character, was shocked by these words. Yet in the next moment her heart swelled with the consciousness of having deserved praise instead of censure, and she was proudly silent. Montoni, acquainted with the delicacy of her mind, knew how keenly she would feel his rebuke, but he was a stranger to the luxury of conscious worth, and therefore did not foresee the energy of that sentiment which now repelled his satire. Turning to a servant who had lately entered the room, he asked whether Morano had quitted the castle. The man answered that his servants were then removing him on a couch to a neighboring cottage. Montoni seemed somewhat appeased on hearing this, and when Ludovico appeared a few moments after and said that Morano was gone, he told Emily she might retire to her apartment. She withdrew willingly from his presence, but the thought of passing the remainder of the night in a chamber which the door from the staircase made liable to the intrusion of any person now alarmed her more than ever, and she determined to call at Madame Montoni's room and request that Annette might be permitted to be with her. On reaching the great galley, she heard voices seemingly in dispute, and her spirits now apt to take alarm, she paused, but soon distinguished some words of Cavini and Verezzi, and went towards them in the hopes of conciliating their difference. They were alone. Verezzi's face was still flushed with rage, and as the first object of it was now removed from him, he appeared willing to transfer his resentment to Cavini, who seemed to be expostulating rather than disputing with him. Verezzi was protesting that he would instantly inform Montoni of the insult which Morano had thrown out against him, and above all, that wherein he had accused him of murder. There is no answering, said Cavini, for the words of a man in a passion. Little serious regard ought to be paid to them. If you persist in your resolution, the consequences may be fatal to both. We have now more serious interests to pursue than those of a petty revenge. Emily joined her entreaties to Cavini's arguments, and they at length prevailed so far as that Ferrezzi consented to retire without seeing Montoni. On calling at her aunt's apartment, she found it fastened. In a few minutes, however, it was opened by Madame Montoni herself. It may be remembered that it was by a door leading into the bedroom from a back passage that Emily had secretly entered a few hours preceding. She now conjectured by the calmness of Madame Montoni's air that she was not apprised of the accident which had befallen her husband, and was beginning to inform her of it in the tenderness manner she could when her aunt interrupted her by saying she was acquainted with the whole affair. Emily knew indeed that she had little reason to love Montoni, 
but could scarcely have believed her capable of such perfect apathy as she now discovered towards him. Having obtained permission, however, for Annette to sleep in her chamber, she went thither immediately. A track of blood appeared along the corridor leading to it, and on the spot where the Count and Montoni had fought, the whole floor was stained. Emily shuddered, and leaned on Annette as she passed. When she reached her apartment, she instantly determined, since the door of the staircase had been left open, and that Annette was now with her, to explore whither it led, a circumstance now materially connected with her own safety. Annette accordingly, half curious and half afraid, proposed to descend the stairs, but on approaching the door, they perceived that it was already fastened without, and their care was then directed to the securing it on the inside also, by placing against it as much of the heavy furniture of the room as they could lift. Emily then retired to bed, and Annette continued on a chair by the hearth, where some feeble embers remained. End of Volume 2, Chapter 6 The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 7 Of every tongues that syllable men's names On sands and shores and desert wildernesses Milton It is now necessary to mention some circumstances which could not be related amidst the events of Emily's hasty departure from Venice, or together with those which so rapidly succeeded to her arrival in the castle. On the morning of her journey, Count Morano had gone at the appointed hour to the mansion of Montoni to demand his bride. When he reached it, he was somewhat surprised by the silence and solitary air of the portico where Montoni's lackeys usually loitered. But surprise was soon changed to astonishment, and astonishment to the rage of disappointment, when the door was opened by an old woman, who told his servants that her master and his family had left Venice early in the morning for terra firma. Scarcely believing what his servants told, he left his gondola and rushed into the hall to inquire further. The old woman, who was the only person left in care of the mansion, persisted in her story, which the silent and deserted apartment soon convinced him was no fiction. He then seized her with a menacing air, as if he meant to wreak all his vengeance upon her, at the same time asking her twenty questions in a breath and all these with a gesticulation so furious that she was deprived of the power of answering them. Then suddenly letting her go, he stamped about the hall like a madman, cursing Montoni and his own folly. When the good woman was at liberty and had somewhat recovered from her fright, she told him all she knew of the affair, which was, indeed, very little but enough to enable Murano to discover that Montoni was gone to his castle on the Apennine. Thither he followed as soon as his servants could complete the necessary preparation for the journey. Accompanied by a friend, and attended by a number of his people, determined to obtain Emily, or a full revenge on Montoni. When his mind had recovered from the first effervescence of rage, and his thoughts became less obscure. 
his conscience hinted to him certain circumstances, which, in some measure, explained the conduct of Montoni. But how the latter could have been led to suspect an intention, which, he had believed, was known only to himself, he could not even guess. On this occasion, however, he had been partly betrayed by that sympathetic intelligence which may be said to exist between bad minds, and which teaches one man to judge what another will do in the same circumstances. Thus it was with Montoni, who had now received indisputable proof of a truth, which he had sometimes suspected that Murano's circumstances, instead of being affluent as he had been bidden to believe, were greatly involved. Montoni had been interested in his suit by motives entirely selfish, those of avarice and pride, the last of which would have been gratified by an alliance with a Venetian nobleman, the former by Emily's estate in Gascony, which he had stipulated as the price of his favour should be delivered up to him from the day of her marriage. In the meantime, he had been led to suspect the consequence of the Count's boundless extravagance, but it was not till the evening preceding the intended nuptials that he obtained certain information of his distressed circumstances. He did not hesitate then to infer that Murano designed to defraud him of Emily's estate, and in this supposition he was confirmed, and with apparent reason, by the subsequent conduct of the Count, who, after having appointed to meet him on that night for the purpose of signing the instrument, which was to secure to him his reward, failed in his engagement. Such a circumstance, indeed, in a man of Murano's gay and thoughtless character, and at a time when his mind was engaged by the bustle of preparation for his nuptials, might have been attributed to a cause less decisive than design, but Montoni did not hesitate an instant to intercept it his own way, and, after vainly awaiting the Count's arrival for several hours, he gave orders for his people to be in readiness to set off at a moment's notice. By hastening to Udolpho, he intended to remove Emily from the reach of Murano, as well as to break off the affair without submitting himself to useless altercation. And if the Count meant what he called honourable, he would doubtless follow Emily and sign the writings in question. If this was done, so little consideration had Montoni for her welfare that he would not have scrupled to sacrifice her to a man of ruined fortune, since by that means he could enrich himself, and he forbore to mention to her the motive of his sudden journey, lest the hope it might revive should render her more intractable, when submission would be required. With these considerations he had left Venice, and with others totally different. Murano had, soon after, persuaded his steps across the rugged Apennines. When his arrival was announced at the castle, Montoni did not believe that he would have presumed to show himself, unless he had meant to fulfil his engagement, 
and he, therefore, readily admitted him. But the enraged countenance and expressions of Murano as he entered the apartment instantly undeceived him, and when Montoni had explained, in part, the motives of his abrupt departure from Venice, the Count still persisted in demanding Emily, and reproaching Montoni without even naming the former stipulation. Montoni, at length, weary of the dispute, deferred the settling of it till the morrow, and Murano retired with some hope, suggested by Montoni's apparent indecision. When, however, in the silence of his own apartment, he began to consider the past conversation, the character of Montoni, and some former instances of his duplicity, the hope which he had admitted vanished and he determined not to neglect the present possibility of obtaining Emily by other means. To his confidential valet, he told his designer carrying away Emily, and sent him back to Montoni's servants to find out one among them, who might enable him to execute it. The choice of this person he entrusted to the fellow's own discernment, and not imprudently he discovered a man whom Montoni had, on some former occasion, treated harshly, and who was now ready to betray him. This man conducted Cicero round the castle, through a private passage, to the staircase that led to Emily's chamber, then showed him a short way out of the building, and afterwards procured him the keys. That would secure his retreat. The man was well rewarded for his trouble. How the Count was rewarded for his treachery had already appeared. Meanwhile, old Carlo had overheard two of Murano's servants, who had been ordered to be in waiting with the carriage beyond the castle walls, expressing their surprise at their master's sudden and secret departure, for the valet had entrusted them with no more of Murano's designs than it was necessary for them to execute. They, however, indulged themselves in surmises, and in expressing them to each other, and from these Carlo had drawn a just conclusion. But before he ventured to disclose his apprehensions to Montoni, he endeavoured to obtain further confirmation of them, and for this purpose placed himself with one of his fellow servants, at the door of Emily's apartment that opened upon the corridor. He did not watch long in vain, though the growling of the dog had once nearly betrayed him, when he was convinced that Murano was in the room and had listened long enough to his conversation to understand his scheme. He immediately alarmed Montoni and thus rescued Emily from the designs of the Count. Montoni, on the following morning, appeared as usual, except that he wore his wounded arm in a sling. He went out upon the ramparts, overlooked the men employed in repairing them, gave orders for additional workmen, and then came into the castle to give audience to several persons who were just arrived, and who were shown into a private apartment where he communicated with them for near an hour. Carlo was then summoned and ordered to conduct the strangers to a part of the castle which, in former times, 
had been occupied by the upper servants of the family, and to provide them with every necessary refreshment. When he had done this, he was bidden to return to his master. Meanwhile, the Count remained in a cottage in the skirts of the woods below, suffering under bodily and mental pain, and meditating deep revenge against Montoni. His servant, whom he had dispatched for a surgeon to the nearest town, which was, however, at a considerable distance, did not return till the following day, when, his wounds being examined and dressed, the practitioner refused to deliver any positive opinion concerning the degree of danger attending them, but giving his patient a composing draught and ordering him to be quiet, remained at the cottage to watch the event. Emily, for the remainder of the late eventful night, had been suffered to sleep, undisturbed, and, when her mind recovered from the confusion of slumber, and she remembered that she was now released from the addresses of Count Morano, her spirits were suddenly relieved from a part of the terrible anxiety that had long oppressed them, that which remained arose chiefly from a recollection of Morano's assertions concerning the schemes of Montoni. He had said that plans of the latter concerning Emily were insearchable, yet that he knew them to be terrible. At the time he uttered this, she almost believed it to be designed for the purpose of prevailing with her to throw herself into his protection, and she still thought it might be chiefly so accounted for, but his assertions had left an impression on her mind, which a consideration of the character and former conduct of Montoni did not contribute to efface. She, however, checked her propensity to anticipate evil, and, determined to enjoy this respite from actual misfortune, tried to dismiss thought, took her instruments for drawing, and placed herself at a window to select into a landscape some features of the scenery without. As she was thus employed, she saw, walking on the rampart below, the men who had so lately arrived at the castle. The sight of strangers surprised her, but still more of strangers such as these. There were a singularity in their dress and a certain fierceness in their air that fixed all her attention. She withdrew from the casement while they passed, but soon returned to observe them further. Their figures seemed so well suited to the wildness of the surrounding objects that, as they stood surveying the castle, she sketched them for banditti. Amid the mountain view of her picture, when she had finished which, she was surprised to observe the spirit of her group. But she had copied from nature. Carlo, when he had placed refreshments before these men in the apartment assigned to them, returned as he was ordered, to Montoni, who was anxious to discover by what servant the keys of the castle had been delivered to Murano on the preceding night. But this man, though he was too faithful to his master quietly to see him injured, would not betray a fellow servant even to justice. He, therefore, pretended to be ignorant who it was 
that had conspired with Count Morano, and related, as before, that he had only overheard some of the strangers describing the plot. Montoni's suspicions naturally fell upon the porter, whom he ordered now to attend. Carlo hesitated, and then, with slow steps, went to seek him. Barnardine, the porter, denied the accusation, with a countenance so steady and undaunted, that Montoni could scarcely believe him guilty, though he knew not how to think him innocent. At length, the man was dismissed from his presence, and, though the real offender, escaped detection. Montoni then went to his wife's apartment, whither Emily followed soon after, but, finding them in high dispute, was instantly leaving the room, when her aunt called her back, and desired her to stay. You shall be a witness, said she, of my opposition. Now, sir, repeat the command I have so often refused to obey. Montoni turned with a stern countenance to Emily and bade her quit the apartment, while his wife persisted in desiring that she would stay. Emily was eager to escape from this scene of contention and anxious also to serve her aunt, but she despaired of conciliating Montoni, in whose eyes the rising tempest of his soul flashed terribly. Leave the room, said he, in a voice of thunder. Emily obeyed, and walking down to the rampart, which the strangers had now left, continued to meditate on the unhappy marriage of her father's sister, and on her own desolate situation, occasioned by the ridiculous imprudence of her, whom she had always wished to respect and love. Madame Montoni's conduct had, indeed, rendered it impossible for Emily to do either, but her gentle heart was touched by her distress, and, in the pity thus awakened, she forgot the injurious treatment she had received from her. As she sauntered on the rampart, Annette appeared at the hall door, looked cautiously round, and then advanced to meet her. Dear Mademoiselle, I have been looking for you all over the castle, said she. If you will step this way, I will show you a picture. A picture, exclaimed Emily, and shuddered. Yes, ma'am, a picture of the late lady of this place. Old Carlo just now told me it was her, and I thought you would be curious to see it. As to my lady, you know, mademoiselle, one cannot talk about such things to her. And so, said Emily smilingly, as you must talk of them to somebody. Why, yes, mademoiselle, what can one do in such a place as this? If one must not talk, if I was in a dungeon, if they would let me talk, it would be some comfort, nay? I would talk, if it was only to the wall. But come, mademoiselle, we lose time. Let me show you to the picture. It is veiled, said Emily, pausing. Dear mademoiselle, said Annette, fixing her eyes on Emily's face, what makes you look so pale? Are you ill? No, Annette, I am well enough, but I have no desire to see this picture. 
returning to the hall. What, ma'am? Not to see the lady of this castle, said the girl. The lady, who disappeared too strangely. Well, now, I would have run to the furthest mountain we could see, yonder, to have got a sight of such a picture. And, to speak my mind, that strange story is all that makes me care about this old castle, though it makes me thrill all over, as it were, whenever I think of it. Yes, Annette, you love the wonderful, but do you know that, unless you guard against this inclination, it will lead you into all the misery of superstition? Annette might have smiled in her turn at this sage observation of Emily, who could tremble with ideal terrors as much as herself, and listen almost as eagerly to the recital of a mysterious story. Annette urged her request. Are you sure it is a picture? said Emily. Have you seen it? Is it veiled? Holy Maria, mademoiselle. Yes, no, yes. I am sure it is a picture. I have seen it, and it is not veiled. The tone and look of surprise with which this was uttered recalled Emily's prudence, who concealed her emotion under a smile, and bade Annette lead her to the picture. It was in an obscure chamber, adjoining that part of the castle, allotted to the servants. Several other portraits hung on the walls, covered like this, with dust and cobweb. That is it, mademoiselle, said Annette, in a low voice, and pointing. Emily advanced, and surveyed the picture. It represented a lady in the flower of youth and beauty. Her features were handsome and noble, full of strong expression, but had little of the captivating sweetness that Emily had looked for, and still less of the pensive mildness she loved. It was a countenance which spoke the language of passion, rather than that of sentiment, a haughty impatience of misfortune, not the placid melancholy of a spirit injured, yet resigned. How many years have passed since this lady disappeared, Annette, said Emily. Twenty years, mademoiselle, or thereabout. As they tell me, I know it is a long while ago. Emily continued to gaze upon the portrait. I think, resumed Annette, the signor would do well to hang it in a better place than this old chamber. Now, in my mind, he ought to place the picture of a lady who gave him all these riches in the handsomest room in the castle, but he may have good reasons for what he does. And some people do say that he has lost his riches as well as his gratitude. But hush, ma'am, not a word, added Annette, laying her finger on her lips. Emily was too much absorbed in thought to hear what she said. Tis a handsome lady, I am sure, continued Annette. The signor need not be ashamed to put her in the great apartment, where the veil picture hangs. Emily turned round, but for that matter, she would be as little seen there as here, for the door is always locked, I find. 
Let us leave this chamber, said Emily, and let me caution you again, Annette. Be guarded in your conversation, and never tell that you know anything of that picture. Holy Mother, exclaimed Annette, it is no secret. Why, all the servants have seen it already. Emily started. How is this? said she. Have seen it? When? How? Dear Mademoiselle, there is nothing surprising in that. We had all a little more curiousness than you had. I thought you told me the door was kept locked, said Emily. If that was the case, Mademoiselle, replied Annette, looking about her, how could we get here? Oh, you mean this picture, said Emily, with returning calmness. Well, Annette, here is nothing more to engage my attention. We will go. Emily, as she passed to her own apartment, saw Montoni go down to the hall, and she turned into her aunt's dressing room, whom she found weeping and alone, grief and resentment struggling on her countenance. Pride had hitherto restrained complaint. Judging of Emily's disposition from her own, and from a consciousness of what her treatment of her deserved, she had believed that her griefs would be cause of triumph to her niece, rather than of sympathy, that she would despise, not pity her. But she knew not the tenderness and benevolence of Emily's heart, that had always taught her to forget her own injuries in the misfortunes of her enemy. The sufferings of others, whoever they might be, called forth her ready compassion, which dissipated at once every obscuring cloud to goodness. That passion or prejudice might have raised in her mind. Madame Montoni's sufferings, at length, rose above her pride, and when Emily had before entered the room, she would have told them all, had not her husband prevented her. Now that she was no longer restrained by his presence, she poured forth all her complaints to her niece. Oh, Emily, she explained, I am the most wretched of women. I am indeed cruelly treated. Who, with my prospects of happiness, could have foreseen such a wretched fate as this? Who could have thought, when I married such a man as the Signor, I should ever have to bewail my lot? But there is no judging what is for the best. There is no knowing what is for our good. The most flattering prospects often change. The best judgments may be deceived. Who could have foreseen, when I married the Signor, that I should ever repent my generosity? Emily thought she might have foreseen it, but this was not a thought of triumph. She placed herself in a chair near her aunt, took her hand, and, with one of those looks of soft compassion, which might characterize the countenance of a guardian angel, spoke to her in the tenderest accents. But these did not soothe Madame Montoni, whom impatience to talk made unwilling to listen. She wanted to complain, not to be consoled, and it was by exclamations of complaint only 
that Emily learned the particular circumstances of her affliction. Ungrateful man, said Madame Montoni, he has deceived me in every respect, and now he has taken me from my country and friends to shut me up in this old castle, and here he thinks he can compel me to do whatever he designs. But he shall find himself mistaken. He shall find that no threats can alter. But who would have believed, who would have supposed that a man of his family and apparent wealth had absolutely no fortune? No, scarcely a sequin of his own. I did all for the best. I thought he was a man of consequence, of great property, or I am sure I would never have married him. Ungrateful, artful man. She paused to take breath. Dear madam, be composed, said Emily. The Signor may not be so rich as you had reason to expect, but surely he cannot be very poor, since this castle and the mansion of Venice are his. May I ask what are the circumstances that particularly affect you? What are the circumstances, exclaimed Madame Montoni with resentment? Why, is it not sufficient that he had long ago ruined his own fortune by play, and that he has since lost what I brought him, and that now he would compel me to sign away my settlement? It was well I had the chief of my property settled on myself, that he may lose this also, or throw it away in wild schemes, which nobody can understand but himself, and, and is not all this sufficient? It is indeed, said Emily, but you must recollect, dear madam, that I knew nothing of all this. Well, and is it not sufficient, rejoined her aunt, that he is also absolutely ruined? that he is sunk deeply in debt, and that neither this castle or the mansion at Venice is his own. If all his debts, honourable and dishonourable, were paid, I am shocked by what you tell me, madam, said Emily. And is it not enough, interrupted Madame Montoni, that he has treated me with neglect, with cruelty, because I refused to relinquish my settlements? and, instead of being frightened by his menaces, resolutely defied him, and upbraided him with his shameful conduct. But I bore all meekly. You know, niece, I never uttered a word of complaint till now. No, that such a disposition as mine should be so imposed upon, that I, whose only faults are too much kindness, too much generosity should be chained for life to such a vile, deceitful, cruel monster. Want of breath compelled Madame Montoni to stop. If anything could have made Emily smile in these moments, it would have been this speech of her aunt, delivered in a voice very little below a scream, and with a vehemence of gesticulation and of countenance that turned the whole into burlesque. Emily saw that her misfortunes did not admit of real consolation, and, contemning the commonplace terms of superficial comfort, she was silent, while Madame Montoni, jealous of her own consequence, mistook this for the silence of indifference, 
or of contempt, and reproached her with want of duty and feeling. Oh, I suspected what all this boasted sensibility would prove to be, rejoined she. I thought it would not teach you to feel either duty or affection for your relations who have treated you like their own daughter. Pardon me, madam, said Emily, mildly. It is not natural to me to boast, and if it was, I am sure I would not boast of sensibility, a quality, perhaps, more to be feared than desired. Well, well, niece, I will not dispute with you. But as I said, Montoni threatens me with violence if I any longer refuse to sign away my settlements. And this was the subject of our contest. When you came into the room before. Now, I am determined no power on earth shall make me do this. Neither will I bear all this tamely. He shall hear his true character from me. I will tell him all he deserves in spite of his threats and cruel treatment. Emily seized a pause of Madame Montoni's voice to speak. Dear Madame, said she, but will not this serve to irritate the Signor unnecessarily? Will it not provoke the harsh treatment you dread? I do not care, replied Madame Montoni. It does not signify. I will not submit to such usage. You would have me give up my settlements, too, I suppose? No, madam, I do not exactly mean that. What is it you do mean, then? You spoke of reproaching the Signor, said Emily, with hesitation. Why, does he not deserve reproaches, said her aunt? Certainly he does. But will it be prudent in you, madam, to make them? Prudent? explained Madame Montoni. Is this a time to talk of prudence when one is threatened with all sorts of violence? It is to avoid that violence that prudence is necessary, said Emily. Of prudence, continued Madame Montoni, without attending to her, of prudence towards a man who does not scruple to break all the common ties of humanity in his conduct to me. And is it for me to consider prudence in my behaviour towards him? I am not so mean. It is for your own sake, not for the signors, madam, said Emily modestly, that you should consult prudence. Your reproaches, however just, cannot punish him, but they may provoke him to further violence against you. What? Would you have me submit? Then... To whatever he commands, would you have me kneel down at his feet and thank him for his cruelties? Would you have me give up my settlements? How much you mistake me, madam, said Emily. I am unequal to advise you on a point so important as the last. But you will pardon me for saying that if you consult your own peace, you will try to conciliate Signor Montoni rather than to irritate him by reproaches. Conciliate, indeed. I tell you, niece, it is utterly impossible. I disdain to attempt it. End of chapter 20, part A. Emily was shocked to observe the perverted understanding and obstinate temper of Madame Montoni. But, 
not less grieved for her sufferings, she looked round for some alleviating circumstance to offer her. Your situation is, perhaps, not so desperate, dear madam, said Emily, as you may imagine. The signor may represent his affairs to be worse than they are, for the purpose of pleading a stronger necessity for his possession of your settlement. Besides, so long as you keep this, you may look forward to it as a resource, at least, that will afford you a competence, should the signor's future conduct compel you to sue for separation. Madame Montoni impatiently interrupted her. Unfeeling, cruel girl, said she, and so you would persuade me that I have no reason to complain, that the signor is in very flourishing circumstances, that my future prospects promise nothing but comfort, and that my griefs are as fanciful and romantic as your own. Is it the way to console me, to endeavour to persuade me out of my senses and my feelings, because you happen to have no feelings yourself? I thought I was opening my heart to a person who could sympathise in my distress, but I find that your people of sensibility can feel for nobody but themselves. You may retire to your chamber. Emily, without replying, immediately left the room, with a mingled emotion of pity and contempt, and hastened to her own, where she yielded to the mournful reflections which a knowledge of her aunt's situation had occasioned. The conversation of the Italian with Valancourt in France again occurred to her. His hints respecting the broken fortunes of Montoni were now completely justified. Those, also, concerning his character appeared not less so, though the particular circumstances connected with his fame to which the stranger had alluded yet remained to be explained. Notwithstanding that her own observations and the words of Count Morano had convinced her that Montoni's situation was not what it formerly appeared to be. The intelligence she had just received from her aunt on this point struck her with all the force of astonishment, which was not weakened when she considered the present style of Montoni's living, the number of servants he maintained, and the new expenses he was incurring by repairing and fortifying his castle. Her anxiety for her aunt and for herself increased with reflection. Several assertions of Murano, which, on the preceding night, she had believed were prompted either by interest or by resentment, now returned to her mind with the strength of truth. She could not doubt that Montoni had formally agreed to give her to the Count for a pecuniary reward. His character and his distressed circumstances justified the belief. These also seemed to confirm Murano's assertion that he now designed to dispose of her more advantageously for himself to a richer suitor. Amidst the reproaches which Murano had thrown out against Montoni, he had said he would not quit the castle he dared to call his, nor willingly leave another murder on his conscience, hints which might have no other origin 
than the passion of the moment. But Emily was now inclined to account for them more seriously, and she shuddered to think that she was in the hands of a man to whom it was even possible they could apply. At length, considering that reflection could neither release her from her melancholy situation or enable her to bear it with greater fortitude, she tried to divert her anxiety and took down from her little library a volume of her favourite Ariosto. But his wild imagery and rich invention could not long enchant her attention. His spells did not reach her heart, and over her sleeping fancy they played, without awakening it. She now put aside the book and took her lute, for it was seldom that her sufferings refused to yield to the magic of sweet sounds. When they did so, she was oppressed by sorrow that came from excess of tenderness and regret, and there were times when music had increased such sorrow to a degree that was scarcely endurable, when, if it had not suddenly ceased, she might have lost her reason. Such was the time when she mourned for her father and heard the midnight strains that floated by her window near the convent in Languedoc on the night that followed his death. She continued to play till Annette brought dinner into her chamber, at which Emily was surprised, and inquired whose order she obeyed. My lady, mademoiselle, replied Annette, the signor ordered her dinner to be carried to her own apartment, and so she has sent you yours. There have been sad doings between them, worse than ever, I think. Emily, not appearing to notice what she said, sat down to the little table that was spread for her. But Annette was not to be silenced thus easily. While she waited, she told of the arrival of the men, whom Emily had observed on the ramparts, and expressed much surprise at their strange appearance as well as at the manner in which they had been attended by Montoni's order. Did they dine with the Signor then? said Emily. No, mademoiselle, they dined long ago, in an apartment at the north end of the castle, but I know not when they are to go, for the Signor told old Carlo to see them provided with everything necessary. They have been walking all about the castle, and asking questions of the workmen on the rampart. I never saw such strange-looking men in my life. I am frightened whenever I see them. Emily inquired if she had heard of Count Morano, and whether he was likely to recover. But Annette only knew that he was lodged in a cottage in the wood below, and that everybody said he must die. Emily's countenance discovered her emotion. Dear mademoiselle, said Annette, to see how young ladies will disguise themselves when they are in love. I thought you hated the Count, or I am sure I would not have told you, and I am sure you have cause enough to hate him. I hope I hate nobody, replied Emily, trying to smile, but certainly I do not love Count Morano. I should be shocked to hear of any person dying by violent means. Yes, mademoiselle. But it is his own fault. Emily looked displeased, 
and Annette, mistaking the cause of her displeasure, immediately began to excuse the Count in her way. To be sure, it was very ungentle behaviour, said she, to break into a lady's room, and then, when he found his discoursing was not agreeable to her, to refuse to go, and then, when the gentleman of the castle comes to desire him to walk about his business, to turn round and draw his sword, and swear he'll run him through the body. To be sure, it was very ungenteel behaviour, but then he was disguised in love, and so did not know what he was about. Enough of this, said Emily, who now smiled without an effort, and Annette returned to a mention of the disagreement between Montoni and her lady. It is nothing new, said she. We saw and heard enough of this at Venice, though I never told you of it, mademoiselle. Well, Annette, it was very prudent of you not to mention it then. Be as prudent now, the subject is an unpleasant one. Ah, dear mademoiselle, to see now how considerate you can be about some folks who care so little about you. I cannot bear to see you so deceived and I must tell you, but it is all for your own good, and not to spite my lady, though, to speak truth, I have little reason to love her, but you are not speaking thus of my aunt, I hope, Annette, said Emily gravely. Yes, mademoiselle, but I am, though, and if you knew as much as I do, you would not look so angry. I have often and often heard the Signor and her talking over your marriage with the Count, and she always advised him never to give up to your foolish whims, as she was pleased to call them, but to be resolute and compel you to be obedient, whether you would or no. And I am sure my heart has ached a thousand times, and I have thought when she was so unhappy herself, she might have felt a little for other people. And I thank you for your pity, Annette, said Emily, interrupting her. But my aunt was unhappy then, and that disturbed her temper perhaps. Or, I think, I am sure, you may take away, Annette, I have done. Dear mademoiselle, you have eaten nothing at all. Do try, and take a little bit more. Disturbed her temper truly. Why, her temper is always disturbed, I think. And at Thalouse, too, I have heard my lady talk of you and Monsieur Valancourt to Madame Merveille and Madame Vaison, often and often in a very ill-natured way, as I thought, telling them what a deal of trouble she had to keep you in order, and what a fatigue and distress it was to her, and that she believed you would run away with Monsieur Valancourt if she was not to watch you closely and that you connived at his coming about the house at night, and... Good God! exclaimed Emily, blushing deeply. It is surely impossible my aunt could thus have represented me. Indeed, ma'am, I say nothing more than the truth, and not all of that. But I thought, myself, she might have found something better to discourse about than the faults of her own niece. Even if you had been in fault, mademoiselle, but I did not believe a word of what she said. But my lady does not care what she says against anybody, for that matter. However, that may be, Annette, interrupted Emily, recovering her composure, 
It does not become you to speak of the faults of my aunt to me. I know you have meant well, but say no more. I have quite dined. Annette blushed, looked down, and then began slowly to clear the table. Is this, then, the reward of my ingenuousness, said Emily, when she was alone? The treatment I am to receive from a relation, an aunt, who ought to have been the guardian, not the slander of my reputation, who, as a woman, ought to have respected the delicacy of female honour, and, as a relation, should have protected mine. But to utter falsehoods on so nice a subject, to repay the openness, and I may say with honest pride the propriety of my conduct, with slanders required a depravity of heart, such as I could scarcely have believed existent, such as I weep to find in a relation. Oh, what a contrast does her character present to that of my beloved father, while envy and low cunning form the chief traits of hers. His was distinguished by benevolence and philosophic wisdom. But now, let me only remember, if possible, that she is unfortunate. Emily threw her veil over her and went down to walk upon the rampart. The only walk, indeed, which was open to her, though she often wished that she might be permitted to ramble among the woods below, and still more that she might sometimes explore the sublime scenes of the surrounding country. But as Montoni would not suffer her to pass the gates of the castle, she tried to be contented with the romantic views she beheld from the walls. The peasants who had been employed on the fortifications had left their work, and the ramparts were silent and solitary. Their lonely appearance, together with the gloom of a lowering sky, assisted the musings of her mind, and threw over it a kind of melancholy tranquillity, such as she often loved to indulge. She turned to observe a fine effect of the sun, as his rays, suddenly streaming from behind a heavy cloud, lighted up the west towers of the castle while the rest of the edifice was in deep shade, except that, through a lofty Gothic arch, adjoining the tower which led to another terrace, the beams darted in full splendour and showed the three strangers she had observed in the morning. Perceiving them, she started, and a momentary fear came over her as she looked up the long rampart and saw no other persons while she hesitated, they approached. The gate at the end of the terrace, whither they were advancing, she knew was always locked, and she could not depart by the opposite extremity without meeting them. But before she passed them, she hastily drew a thin veil over her face, which did, indeed, but ill conceal her beauty. They looked earnestly at her, and spoke to each other in bad Italian, of which she caught only a few words, but the fierceness of their countenances, now that she was near enough to discriminate them, struck her yet more than the wild singularity of their air and dress had formerly done. It was the countenance and figure of him who walked between the other two that chiefly seized her attention, which expressed a sullen haughtiness and a kind of dark watchful villainy 
that gave a thrill of horror to her heart. All this was so legibly written on his features as to be seen by a single glance, for she passed the group swiftly, and her timid eyes scarcely rested on them a moment. Having reached the terrace, she stopped and perceived the stranger standing in the shadow of one of the turrets, gazing after her, and seemingly by their action in earnest conversation. She immediately left the rampart and retired to her apartment. In the evening, Montoni sat late, carousing with his guests in the cedar chamber. His recent triumph over Count Morano, or perhaps some other circumstance, contributed to elevate his spirits to an unusual height. He filled the goblet often and gave a loose to merriment and talk. The gaiety of Cabernet, on the contrary, was somewhat clouded by anxiety. He kept a watchful eye upon Veresi, whom, with the utmost difficulty, he had hitherto restrained from exasperating Montoni further against Murano by a mention of his late taunting words. One of the company exultingly recurred to the event of the preceding evening. Veresi's eyes sparkled. The mention of Murano led to that of Emily, of whom they were all profuse in the praise, except Montoni, who sat silent, and then interrupted the subject. When the servants had withdrawn, Montoni and his friends entered into close conversation, which was sometimes checked by the irrecible temper of Baresi, but in which Montoni displayed his conscious superiority by that decisive look and manner which always accompanied the vigour of his thought, and to which most of his companions submitted, as to a power that they had no right to question, though of each other's self-importance they were jealousy scrupulous. Amidst this conversation, one of them imprudently introduced again the name of Murano, and Veresi, now more heated by wine, disregarded the expressive looks of Cabernet, and gave some dark hints of what had passed on the preceding night. These, however, Montoni did not appear to understand, for he continued silent in his chair, without discovering any emotion, while the colour of Veresi, increasing with the apparent insensibility of Montoni, he at length told the suggestion of Murano that this castle did not lawfully belong to him, and that he would not willingly leave another murder on his conscience. Am I to be insulted at my own table, and by my own friends? said Montoni, with a countenance pale in anger. Why are the words of that madman repeated to me? Veresi, who had expected to hear Montoni's indignation, poured forth against Murano, and answered by thanks to himself, looked with astonishment at Cabernet, who enjoyed his confusion. Can you be weak enough to credit the assertions of a madman? rejoined Montoni. Or, what is the same thing, a man possessed by the spirit of vengeance? But he has succeeded too well. You believe what he says? Signor, said Veresi, we believe only what we know. How, interrupted Montoni sternly, produce your proof. 
We believe only what we know, repeated Baresi, and we know nothing of what Murano asserts. Montoni seemed to recover himself. I am hasty, my friends, said he. With respect to my honour, no man shall question it with impunity. You did not mean to question it. These foolish words are not worth your remembrance or my resentment. Baresi, here is to your first exploit. Success to your first exploit, re-echoed the whole company. Noble Signor, replied Baresi, glad to find he had escaped Montoni's resentment. With my good will, you shall build your ramparts of gold. Pass the goblet, cried Montoni. We will drink to Signora Saint-Aubert, said Cavani. By your leave, we will first drink to the lady of the castle, said Bertolini. Montoni was silent. To the lady of the castle, said his guests. He bowed his head. It much surprises me, Signor, said Bertolini, that you have so long neglected this castle. It is a noble edifice. It suits our purpose, replied Montoni, and is a noble edifice. You know not, it seems, by what mischance it came to me. It was a lucky mischance, be it what it may, Signor, replied Bertolini, smiling. I would that one so lucky had befallen me. Montoni looked gravely at him. If you will attend to what I say, he resumed, you shall hear the story. The countenances of Bertolini and Baresi expressed something more than curiosity. Cabernet, who seemed to feel none, had probably heard the relation before. It is now near twenty years, said Montoni, since the castle came into my possession. I inherited by the female line. The lady, my predecessor, was only distantly related to me. I am the last of her family. She was beautiful and rich. I wooed her, but her heart was fixed upon another, and she rejected me. It is probable, however, that she was herself rejected of the person, whoever he might be, on whom she bestowed her favour, for a deep and settled melancholy took possession of her, and I have reason to believe she put a period to her own life. I was not at the castle at the time, but, as there are some singular and mysterious circumstances attending that event, I shall repeat them. Repeat them, said a voice. Montoni was silent. The guests looked at each other to know who spoke, but they perceived that each was making the same inquiry. Montoni, at length, recovered himself. We are overheard, said he. We will finish this subject another time. Pass the goblet. The cavaliers looked round the wide chamber. Here is no person but ourselves, said Baresi. Pray, Signor, proceed. Did you hear anything, said Montoni? We did, said Bertolini. It could be only fancy, said Baresi looking round again. We see no person beside ourselves, and the sound I thought I heard seemed within the room. Pray, Signor, go on. Montoni paused a moment, and then proceeded in a lowered voice, while the cavaliers drew nearer to attend. Yea, to know, Signors, that the Lady Laurentini had for some months shown symptoms of a dejected mind. Nay, 
of a disturbed imagination. Her mood was very unequal. Sometimes she was sunk in calm melancholy, and at others, as I have been told, she betrayed all the symptoms of frantic madness. It was one night in the month of October, after she had recovered from one of those fits of excess, and had sunk again into her usual melancholy, that she retired alone to her chamber, and forbade all interruption. It was the chamber at the end of the corridor, signals, where we had the affray last night. From that hour she was seen no more. How seen no more, said Bertolini. Was not her body found in the chamber? Were her remains never found, cried the rest of the company altogether. Never, replied Montoni. What reasons were there to suppose she destroyed herself then, said Bertolini. Ah, what reasons, said Verretti. How happened it that her remains were never found? Although she killed herself, she could not bury herself. Montoni looked indignantly at Verretti, who began to apologise. Your pardon, Signor, said he. I did not consider that the lady was your relative when I spoke of her so lightly. Montoni accepted the apology, but the Signor will oblige us with the reasons which urged him to believe that the lady committed suicide. Those I will explain hereafter, said Montoni. At present, let me relate a most extraordinary circumstance. This conversation goes no further, Signors. Listen, then, to what I am going to say. Listen, said a voice. They were all again silent, and the countenance of Montoni changed. This is no illusion of the fancy, said Cavani, at length breaking the profound silence. No, said Bertolini, I heard it myself now. Yet here is no person in the room but ourselves. This is very extraordinary, said Montoni, suddenly rising. This is not to be borne. Here is some deception, some trick. I will know what it means. All the company rose from their chairs in confusion. It is very odd, said Bertolini. Here is really no stranger in the room. If it is a trick, Signor, you will do well to punish the author of it severely. A trick? What else can it be? said Cavani, affecting a laugh. The servants were now summoned, and the chamber was searched, but no person was found. The surprise and the consternation of the company increased. Montoni was discomposed. We will leave this room, said he, and the subject of our conversation also. It is too solemn. His guests were equally ready to quit the apartment but the subject had roused their curiosity, and they entreated Montoni to withdraw to another chamber and finish it. No entreaties could, however, prevail with him. Notwithstanding his efforts to appear at ease, he was visibly and greatly disordered. Why, Signor, you are not superstitious, cried Veresi, jeeringly. You, who have so often laughed at the credulity of others, I am not superstitious, replied Montoni, regarding him with stern displeasure, though I know how to despise the commonplace sentences which are frequently uttered against superstition. 
I will inquire further into this affair. He then left the room, and his guests, separating for the night, retired to their respective apartments. End of Volume 2, Chapter 7
but gaiety disgusted and company fatigued his sick mind, and he became an object of unceasing raillery to his companions, from whom, whenever he could steal an opportunity, he escaped to think of Emily. The scenes around him, however, and the company with whom he was obliged to mingle, engaged his attention, though they failed to amuse his fancy, and thus gradually weakened the habit of yielding to lamentation, till it appeared less a duty to his love to indulge it. Among his brother officers were many, who added to the ordinary character of a French soldier's gaiety some of those fascinating qualities which too frequently throw a veil over folly, and sometimes even soften the features of vice into smiles. To these men, the reserved and thoughtful manners of Valancourt were a kind of tacit censure on their own, for which they rallied him when present and plotted against him when absent. They gloried in the thought of reducing him to their own level, and considering it to be a spirited frolic, determined to accomplish it. Valancourt was a stranger to the gradual process of scheme and intrigue, against which he could not be on his guard. He had not been accustomed to receive ridicule, and he could ill endure its sting. He resented it, and this only drew upon him a louder laugh. To escape from such scenes, he fled into solitude, and there the image of Emily met him, and revived the pangs of love and despair. He then sought to renew those tasteful studies which had been the delight of his early years, but his mind had lost the tranquillity which is necessary for their enjoyment. To forget himself and the grief and anxiety which the idea of her recalled, he would quit his solitude and again mingle in the crowd, glad of temporary relief, and rejoicing to snatch amusement for the moment. Thus passed weeks after weeks, time gradually softening his sorrow and habit strengthening his desire of amusement, till the scenes around him seemed to awaken into a new character, and Valancourt to have fallen among them from the clouds. His figure and address made him a welcome visitor wherever he had been introduced, and he soon frequented the most gay and fashionable circles of Paris. Among these was the assembly of the Countess Lacleur, a woman of eminent beauty and captivating manners. She had passed the spring of youth, but her wit prolonged the triumph of its reign, and they mutually assisted the fame of each other. For those who were charmed by her loveliness spoke with enthusiasm of her talents, and others, who admired her playful imagination, declared that her personal graces were unrivalled. But her imagination was merely playful, and her wit, if such it could be called, was brilliant rather than just. It dazzled, and its fallacy escaped the detection of the moment, for the accents in which she pronounced it, and the smile that accompanied them, were a spell upon the judgment of the auditors. Her petits soupers were the most tasteful of any in Paris, and were frequented by many of the second class of literati. She was fond of music, was herself a scientific performer, and had frequently concerts at her house. 
Valancourt, who passionately loved music and who sometimes assisted these concerts, admired her execution, but remembered with a sigh the eloquent simplicity of Emily's songs and the natural expression of her manner, which waited not to be approved by the judgment, but found their way at once to the heart. Madame la Comtesse had often deep play at her house, which she affected to restrain, but secretly encouraged, and it was well known among her friends that the splendour of her establishment was chiefly supplied from the profits of her tables. But her petits soupers were the most charming imaginable. Here were all the delicacies of the four quarters of the world, all the wit and the lighter efforts of genius, all the graces of conversation, the smiles of beauty and the charm of music, and Valancourt passed his pleasantest as well as most dangerous hours in these parties. His brother, who remained with his family in Gascony, had contented himself with giving him letters of introduction to such of his relations residing at Paris, as the latter was not already known to. All these were persons of some distinction, and as neither the person, mind, or manners of Valancourt the younger threatened to disgrace their alliance, they received him with as much kindness as their nature, hardened by uninterrupted prosperity, would admit of. But their attentions did not extend to acts of real friendship, for they were too much occupied by their own pursuits to feel any interest in his, and thus he was set down in the midst of Paris, in the pride of youth, with an open, unsuspicious temper and ardent affections, without one friend to warn him of the dangers to which he was exposed. Emily, who, had she been present, would have saved him from these evils by awakening his heart and engaging him in worthy pursuits, now only increased his danger. It was to lose the grief which the remembrance of her occasioned that he first sought amusement, and for this end he pursued it, till habit made it an object of abstract interest. There was also a Marchioness Chamfort, a young widow, at whose assemblies he passed much of his time. She was handsome, still more artful, gay, and fond of intrigue. The society which she drew around her was less elegant and more vivacious than that of the Countess Lacleur, but as she had address enough to throw a veil, though but a slight one, over the worst part of her character, she was still visited by many persons of what is called distinction. Valancourt was introduced to her parties by two of his fellow officers, whose late ridicule he had now forgiven so far that he could sometimes join in the laugh which a mention of his former manners would renew. The gaiety of the most splendid court in Europe, the magnificence of the palaces, entertainments and equipages that surrounded him, all conspired to dazzle his imagination and reanimate his spirits, and the example and maxims of his military associates to delude his mind. Emily's image, indeed, still lived there, but it was no longer the friend the monitor that saved him from himself, 
and to which he retired to weep the sweet yet melancholy tears of tenderness. When he had recourse to it, it assumed a countenance of mild reproach that wrung his soul and called forth tears of unmixed misery, his only escape from which was to forget the object of it, and he endeavoured, therefore, to think of Emily as seldom as he could. Thus dangerously circumstanced was Valancourt, at the time when Emily was suffering at Venice from the persecuting addresses of Count Morano and the unjust authority of Montani, at which period we leave him. End of Volume 2, Chapter 8 The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 9, Part 1 of 2 the image of a wicked, heinous fault lives in his eye, that close aspect of his, does show the mood of a much-troubled breast, King John. Leaving the gay scenes of Paris, we return to those of the gloomy Apennine, where Emily's thoughts were still faithful to Valancourt. Looking to him as to her only hope, she recollected with jealous exactness Every assurance and every proof she had witnessed of his affection, read again and again the letters she had received from him, weighed with intense anxiety the force of every word that spoke of his attachment, and dried her tears as she trusted in his truth. Montoni, meanwhile, had made strict inquiry concerning the strange circumstance of his alarm without obtaining information and was at length obliged to account for it by the reasonable supposition that it was a mischievous trick played off by one of his domestics. His disagreements with Madame Montoni on the subject of her settlements were now more frequent than ever. He even confined her entirely to her own apartment, and did not scruple to threaten her with much greater severity, should she persevere in a refusal. Reason, had she consulted it, would now have perplexed her in the choice of conduct to be adopted. It would have pointed out the danger of irritating by further opposition a man such as Montoni had proved himself to be, and whose power she had so entirely committed herself, and it would also have told her of what extreme importance to her future comfort it was to reserve for herself those possessions which would enable her to live independently of Montoni, should she ever escape from his immediate control. But she was directed by a more decisive guide than reason, the spirit of revenge, which urged her to oppose violence to violence and obstinacy to obstinacy. Wholly confined to the solitude of her apartment, she was now reduced to solicit the society she had lately rejected, for Emily was the only person except Annette with whom she was permitted to converse. Generously anxious for her peace, Emily, therefore, tried to persuade, when she could not convince, and sought by every gentle means to induce her to forbear that asperity of reply which so greatly irritated Montoni. The pride of her aunt did sometimes soften to the soothing voice of Emily, and there were even moments when she regarded her affectionate attentions with goodwill. The scenes of terrible contention, to which Emily was frequently compelled to be witness, exhausted her spirits more than any circumstance that had occurred since her departure from Thalus. 
The gentleness and goodness of her parents, together with the scenes of her early happiness, often stole on her mind like the visions of a higher world, while the characters and circumstances now passing beneath her eye excited both terror and surprise. She could scarcely have imagined that passions so fierce and so various as those which Montoni exhibited could have been concentrated in one individual. Yet what more surprised her was that on great occasions he could bend these passions, wild as they were, to the cause of his interest, and generally could disguise in his countenance their operation on his mind. But she had seen him too often when he had thought it unnecessary to conceal his nature to be deceived on such occasions. Her present life appeared like the dream of a distempered imagination, or like one of those frightful fictions in which the wild genius of poets sometimes delighted. Reflection brought only regret and anticipation terror. How often did she wish to steal the lark's wing and mount the swiftest gale that Languedoc in repose might once more be hers. Of Count Morano's health, she made frequent inquiry, but Annette heard only vague reports of his danger, and that his surgeon had said he would never leave the cottage alive. While Emily could not but be shocked to think that she, however innocently, might be the means of his death, and Annette, who did not fail to observe her emotion, interpreted it in her own way. But a circumstance soon occurred which entirely withdrew Annette's attention from the subject, and awakened the surprise and curiosity so natural to her. Coming one day to Emily's apartment, with a countenance full of importance, "'What can all this mean, Mademoiselle? said she. "'Would I was safe in Languedoc again. They should never catch me going on my travels any more. I must think it a fine thing, truly, to come abroad and see foreign parts.' I little thought I was coming to be catched up in an old castle among such dreary mountains with the chance of being murdered, or what is as good having my throat cut. What can all this mean indeed, Annette? said Emily in astonishment. I, Mamsel, you may look surprised, but you won't believe it, perhaps till they have murdered you too. You would not believe about the ghost I told you of, though I showed you the very place where it used to appear. You will believe nothing, mademoiselle. Not till you speak more reasonably, Annette. For heaven's sake, explain your meaning. You spoke of murder. Aye, mademoiselle, they are coming to murder us all. Perhaps but what signifies explaining? You will not believe. Emily again desired her to relate what she had seen or heard. Oh, I have seen enough, ma'am, and heard too much, as Ludovico can prove. Poor soul, they will murder him too. I little thought when he sung those sweet verses under my lattice at Venice. Emily looked impatient and displeased. Well, mademoiselle, as I was saying, these preparations about the castle and these strange-looking people that are calling here every day and the signor's cruel usage of my lady and his odd goings-on, all these, as I told Ludovico, can bode no good. And he bid me hold my tongue. So, says I, the signor strangely altered. Ludovico in this gloomy castle to what he was in France. They are all so gay. Nobody so gallant to my lady than, and he could smile too upon a poor servant sometimes and jeer her too good-naturedly enough. I remember once when he said to me as I was going out 
my lady's dressing room. Annette, says he, never mind what the signor said, interrupted Emily, but tell me at once the circumstance which has thus alarmed you. I, Mademoiselle, rejoined Annette. That is just what Ludovico said. Says he, never mind what the signor says to you. So I told him what I thought about the signor. He is so strangely altered, said I. For now he is so haughty, and so commanding, and so sharp with my lady. And if he meets one, he'll scarcely look at one, unless it be to frown. So much the better, says Ludovico, so much the better. And to tell you the truth, mademoiselle, I thought this was a very ill-natured speech of Ludovico, but I went on. And then, says I, he is always knitting his brows, and if one speaks to him, he does not hear. And then he sits up counseling so of a night with the other signors. There they are, till long past midnight, discoursing together. I but, says Ludovico, you don't know what they are counseling about. No, said I, but I can guess. It is about my young lady. Upon that, Ludovico burst out a-laughing, quite loud. So he put me in a huff, for I did not like that either I or you, mademoiselle, should be laughed at, and I turned away quick, but he stopped me. Don't be affronted, Annette, said he, but I cannot help laughing. And with that, he laughed again. What, says he, do you think the signors sit up night after night only to counsel after thy young lady? No, no, there is something more in the wind than that and these repairs about the castle, and these preparations about the ramparts, they are not making about young ladies. Why, surely, says I, the signor, my master, is not going to make war. Make war, says Ludovico? What upon the mountains and the woods? For here is no living soul to make war upon that I see. What are these preparations for, then, said I? Why, surely nobody is coming to take away my master's castle. Then there are so many ill-looking fellows coming to the castle every day, says Ludovico, without answering my question, and the signor sees them all, and talks with them all, and they all stay in the neighborhood. By holy St. Marco, some of them are the most cutthroat-looking dogs I ever set my eyes upon. I asked Ludovico again if he thought they were coming to take away my master's castle, and he said no. He did not think they were, but he did not know for certain. Then yesterday, said he, but you must not tell this, mademoiselle, yesterday a party of these men came and left all their horses in the castle stables, where it seems they are to stay, for the signor ordered them all to be entertained with the best provender in the manger. But the men are, most of them, in the neighboring cottages. So, mademoiselle, I came to tell you all this, for I never heard anything so strange in my life. But what can all these ill-looking men be about, if it is not to murder us? And the signor knows this, why should he be so civil to them? And why should he fortify the castle and counsel so much with the other signors, and be so thoughtful? Is this all you have to tell, Annette? said Emily. Have you heard nothing else that alarms you? Nothing else, Mademoiselle, said Annette. Why, is not this enough? Quite enough for my patience, Annette, but not quite enough to convince me we are all to be murdered, though I acknowledge here is sufficient food for curiosity. She forbore to speak her apprehensions, because she would not encourage Annette's wild terrors. 
but the present circumstances of the castle both surprised and alarmed her. Annette, having told her tale, left the chamber on the wing for new wonders. In the evening, Emily had passed some melancholy hours with Madame Montoni, and was retiring to rest when she was alarmed by a strange and loud knocking at her chamber door, and then a heavy weight fell against it that almost burst it open. She called to know who was there, and receiving no answer, repeated the call, but a chilling silence followed. It occurred to her, for at this moment she could not reason on the probability of circumstances, that some one of the strangers lately arrived at the castle had discovered her apartment, and was come with such intent as her looks rendered too possible to rob, perhaps to murder her. The moment she admitted this possibility, terror supplied the place of conviction, and a kind of instinctive remembrance of her remote situation from the family heightened it to a degree that almost overcame her senses. She looked at the door which led to the staircase, expecting to see it open, and listening in fearful silence for a return of the noise, till she began to think it had proceeded from the door, and a wish of escaping through the opposite one rushed upon her mind. She went to the gallery door, and then, fearing to open it, lest some person might be silently lurking for her without, she stopped, but with her eyes fixed in expectation upon the opposite door of the staircase. As thus she stood, she heard a faint breathing near her, and became convinced that some person was on the other side of the door, which was already locked. She sought for other fastening, but there was none. While she yet listened, the breathing was distinctly heard, and her terror was not soothed when, looking round her wide and lonely chamber, she again considered her remote situation. As she stood hesitating whether to call for assistance, the continuance of the stillness surprised her, and her spirits would have revived had she not continued to hear the faint breathing that convinced her the person, whoever it was, had not quitted the door. At length, Worn out with anxiety, she determined to call loudly for assistance from her casement, and was advancing to it when, whether the terror of her mind gave her ideal sounds, or that real ones did come, she thought footsteps were ascending the private staircase, and expecting to see its door unclosed, she forgot all other cause of alarm, and retreated towards the corridor. Here she endeavored to make her escape, but on opening the door, was very near falling over a person who lay on the floor without. She screamed and would have passed, but her trembling frame refused to support her. And the moment in which she leaned against the wall of the gallery allowed her leisure to observe the figure before her and to recognize the features of Annette. Fear instantly yielded to surprise. She spoke in vain to the poor girl, who remained senseless on the floor and then, losing all consciousness of her own weakness, hurried to her assistance. When Annette recovered, she was helped by Emily into the chamber, but was still unable to speak, and looked round her as if her eyes followed some person in the room. Emily tried to soothe her disturbed spirits, and forbear at present to ask her any questions, but the faculty of speech was never long withheld from Annette, and she explained in broken sentences and in her tedious way, the occasion of her disorder. She affirmed, and with a solemnity of conviction that almost staggered the incredulity of Emily, that she had seen an apparition, 
as she was passing to her bedroom through the corridor. I had heard strange stories of that chamber before, said Annette, but as it was so near yours, Mademoiselle, I would not tell them to you, because they would frighten you. The servants had told me often and often that it was haunted, and that was the reason why it was shut up. Nay, for that matter, why the whole string of these rooms here are shut up. I quaked whenever I went by, and I must say, I did sometimes think I heard odd noises within it. But as I said, as I was passing along the corridor, and not thinking a word about the matter, or even of the strange voice that the signors heard the other night, all of a sudden comes a great light, and looking behind me, there was a tall figure. I saw it as plainly, mademoiselle, as I see you at this moment, a tall figure gliding along. Oh, I cannot describe how, into the room that is always shut up, and nobody has the key of it but the signor, and the door shut directly. Then it doubtless was the signor, said Emily. Oh, no, mademoiselle, it could not be him, for I left him busy a-quarreling in my lady's dressing room. You bring me strange tales, Annette, said Emily. It was but this morning that you would have terrified me with the apprehension of murder, and now you would persuade me you have seen a ghost. These wonderful stories come too quickly. Name himself. I will say no more, only if I had not been frightened, I should not have fainted dead away. So I ran as fast as I could to get to your door. But what was the worst of all, I could not call out. Then I thought something must be strangely the matter with me, and directly I dropped down. Was it the chamber where the black veil hangs? said Emily. Oh no, mademoiselle. It was one nearer to this. What shall I do to get to my room? I would not go out into the corridor again for the whole world. Emily, whose spirits had been severely shocked, and who therefore did not like the thought of passing the night alone, told her she might sleep where she was. Oh no, mademoiselle, replied Annette. I would not sleep in the room now for a thousand sequins. Worried and disappointed, Emily first ridiculed, though she shared her fears, and then tried to soothe them. But neither attempt succeeded, and the girl persisted in believing and affirming that what she had seen was nothing human. It was not till some time after Emily had recovered her composure that she recollected the steps she had heard on the staircase, a remembrance, however, which made her insist that Annette should pass the night with her. And with much difficulty she at length prevailed, assisted by that part of the girl's fear which concerned the corridor. End of Volume 2, Chapter 9, Part 1 of 2